Good morning. Hey, thank you. Good, good. Good morning. And Rachel, thank you for leading worship. All you guys, it's so good to have you guys here. Um, I turned off your amp. Don't forget to turn it back on when you get up here. Um, it's, uh, please pray for me as I share from God's Word this morning, because I'm really hungry. I've never preached before while I'm hungry. I think usually I had a pretty good breakfast, too, but for some reason, I'm, and nobody, I, you're all very kind. I know you're already searching your bags for food, but I can't eat. Oh, I'm up here preaching, so it's just going to be awkward. So I just need your prayer first. So <laughs> let's pray together. Father God, thank you for um, gathering us in your house this Sunday morning. Father, thank you for being the, the kind of God that you are. Thank you for revealing that you are that kind of God. Uh, Father, I pray that you would not only satisfy the hunger that is in my belly, but also the hunger that is in our souls for a knowledge of you that, um, that um, satisfies the longings that, that are within us. Um, God, we, um, we want to know you. We want to know your grandeur. We want to know your power. Um, and we want to know, Lord, whether you know us. And so this morning, may your word um, reveal yourself to us, and uh, may I preach it faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Cool. You guys will need a Bible today. Um, and we try to place them on tables throughout, so you can grab one, or if you brought your own, you can take it out. Um, <clears throat> If you guys are following along in our reading plan, we're now roughly at the book of 1 Kings and 2 Corinthians, so that's what I'm talking on today. I think Kings is a really funny name for that book, because if you read Samuel's, you know that the greatest king in Israel's history is King David. And by the time you get to Kings, David is dead. So you know that even though it is going to be about Kings, it surely can't be about good kings, because... The greatest king is already dead. And indeed, Kings, the book of First and Second Kings, has a long list of kings that really bring Israel to shame. Um, and maybe the pinnacle, the embodiment of that, is King Ahab. Okay? King Ahab is one in a line of kings who, because of his own um, idolatry and his own kind of adulterousness of heart, he leads Israel astray. All right. You find out in, in uh, 1 Kings, I think chapters 16 or 15 or so or something like that, that King Ahab um, marries a woman named Jezebel, who is the daughter of a Sidonite, an outsider, a foreigner. Okay. Now, you know, marrying a daughter uh, of a foreigner is one thing, but when you marry, when you are the king of Israel, and you not only marry a Jezebel, but you also invite into your own life and your kingdom the God, the gods that that outsider worships. That's when the problems begin. Okay? And so what we find in, in 1 Kings is that Ahab has married Jezebel. All right? And Ahab is, of course, the king of Israel, who are God's people. But Jezebel worships a god named Baal. B-A-A-L. Okay? Baal. And, and because he, he um, just loves his wife so much, uh, Ahab starts misleading the people of Israel to also engage in the worship of Baal. Right? So much so that you know, when the king uh, is excited about something, the whole kingdom is supposed to be excited about something too. And so you start to see Israel, who are Yahweh God's people, starting to turn their attention more and more toward this increasingly popular God and this increasingly popular religion of Baal. All right? And I won't go into the details here, but it's, not, it's a not a trivial thing. Okay? It's not just to say that they picked a different religion. Because the practice of worshipping Baal, um, some pretty scary stuff. All right? 
But so, so we have Ahab and Jezebel worshiping Baal, and increasingly people who are interested in getting involved in the religious game, okay, start to get involved in the religious game of the worship of Baal. Alright? And so we come in 1 Kings chapter uh, 18 to one of my favorite stories of the Bible, one that I actually talked about when I preached, I think maybe like half a year ago, so some of you may remember it fresh. But, uh, King Ahab is, is engaged in, in the worship of Baal. There's all these prophets of Baal. And so a prophet of the true God, Elijah, kind of comes onto the scene. And when he shows up at the palace of King Ahab, Ahab knows right away. Because he says, what are you doing here, troublemaker? I know you're here to make trouble for me. Okay? And, and Elijah, the prophet, confronts Ahab and he says, Ahab, look, you can't go around having two wives. You can't go around worshiping two gods. Okay, so let's settle this once and for all. All right, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh left. You got 450 prophets of Baal. Let's try this. Okay, let's put those gods to the test. Here's what we'll do. This is my proposal. Okay, you go ahead and have your prophets pick out two bulls. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. I'm just kidding. Two, two bulls, like animals. All right, and and what we're gonna do is we'll set up two altars. You guys can set up an altar to Baal. I'll set up an altar to Yahweh, all right? And we're each going to sacrifice our bulls on those altars. And we'll see which God sets fire to their sacrifice. And whichever God does, that's the God I want you, Ahab king, to worship. Okay? So they go, you say, sounds good? Let's do it. So all the prophets of Baal come together in the morning. They set up their altar to Baal. They pick two, cow, uh, two bulls. They, they take one. They prepare for the sacrifice. They stick it on there. And they start praying to Baal to ask Baal to set fire to that sacrifice. And they start praying and praying. And it even says that they start dancing. So they're doing all kinds of like ritual Baal dance. I don't really know. And I probably shouldn't do it in front of them. So they're doing like all kinds of Baal dances around. Oh, oh Baal, come on, set fire! You know? And then all this stuff and just going crazy. And, and it goes, it starts in the morning and it keeps going and there's no fire and it keeps going until noontime. Elijah's looking at them going, hey, I don't see any fire. Your God Baal is not responding. Maybe you need to sing louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. Did you try calling? You know, like, he's like, you should text him or something. He's not listening to you. Okay? And all day long, and it just gets more and more intense. And they start, they start cutting themselves as a way to like, I don't know, appease God, their God. So like, cutting themselves, like bleeding. Oh, Baal, please set fire to this sacrifice so we don't look like idiots. Right? Then it comes to the time of the evening sacrifice. Still nothing. Elijah goes up to the, the, the altar of Yahweh, which has been torn down. Okay? Goes up to this fragment of what was the altar to the true God. He, he gets the other bull, prepares it for the sacrifice. He puts 12 stones around it to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the people who God has chosen. He digs a trench around it. He says... You guys, go get some jars of water. They get jars of water and they pour it all over the bull. They just do it again. They get more jars of water. They pour it all over the bull. Do it again. More jars of water. Pours it so that there's water running off the bull, off the altar, around the stones, all the way down to a trench so that becomes like a moat. This thing is soaked. Okay? This is the opposite of fire. Okay? You don't have to be a genius, a scientific genius to know that if you want to set something on fire, you don't surround it with water. Elijah's making a point. And then he turns to God and he says, God in heaven, this is in 
chapter 18, around verse 36. Lord Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord God, are God and that you, you are turning their hearts back again. And just like that, fire, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the bull, the stones, the altar, the whole sacrifice. Whoosh. And all the people bow down. They're like, wow, what fools we have been to worship this God who is nothing, while the God who is the real God has been right here all along. And they chase down the prophets of Baal and kill them all. What a story, huh? Isn't that exciting? I just used up the most exciting story at the beginning of the sermon. I'm done. <laughs> that's it, right? So that's not the point of my, my, my message today, okay? Because it's a great story. But the thing that was, I always thought was unusual and interesting about the story is not what happens here, but what happens next. Go to chapter 19 and read it with me. It says that Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, Jezebel the queen is saying, Elijah, you're dead. I'm coming after you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. I don't know what that is. Sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Okay? That's the part that was always weird to me. Because just like Chris was talking about in the psalm, not only, Elijah, did you just witness God himself Answering the doubters, God himself sent fire from heaven. You were the one that he did it through. If anybody, if anybody should trust and know that God's got his back, it should be Elijah, right? I mean, this, is, this guy is like the hero of the story. How can the hero of the story all of a sudden turn into the simpering, whimpering, frightened weakling who's running away, who's scared, who's so depressed and, and, and frightened that he just wants to die. And I, and I read that and I wonder, what's going on? What, what happened to you? What happened to you, Elijah? And I don't understand it until I think back on an experience I had in my own life. I'm going to share something with you guys, and some of you guys know about it, and some of you guys are going to be like, oh, Paul, you've told this story a million times. Some of you guys actually don't know. When I was in college, I um, was part of an outreach Okay, and what happened was that some people who were part of my fellowship um, wanted to reach out to the Christian, to the non-Christians on our campus, and start engaging them in a dialogue about the faith. And they copied this idea from some people who did it at another school in Arizona. And this was basically the idea: they would ask one person, a Christian, to write what that person believed, kind of a statement of faith. And they would take out an ad in the school newspaper, the Daily Cal, and they would print out their statement of faith in a one-page ad. Okay, and then what? And then during uh, the same week where that that um, ad came out, they would they would invite Christians from all different groups and fellowships to wear a shirt that says "I agree with that person, that student." Okay, 
And so the idea is that people would be wearing these shirts. Everybody would see, oh, everybody's agreeing with this person. And they would ask them questions. Hey, can you tell me what does that shirt mean? What does you agree with who? What is, who is that person? And then the Christians would have an opportunity to say, well, uh, the student uh, is a Christian, and he wrote what he believes, put it in the statement of faith in the, in the school newspaper, and here's why I agree with him. And it would just be an opportunity to start opening dialogue about faith. So they wanted to pick somebody as a student who was, like, not super impressive or not super flashy, but just somebody who was, like, just a very regular, boring guy. So, of course, they asked me. <laughs> right? The boringest guy that they could find. Okay? And so that week became I Agree with Paul week. All right? I wrote a statement of faith. I, my mom kept a copy of it <laughs> in the school newspaper. And for a whole week, 900 Christians on the UC Berkeley campus walked around with orange-colored shirts. And I'm talking about, like, traffic cone orange, like the loudest orange you could imagine. Bright orange shirts that said, I agree with me, or Paul, okay, is what they said, all right? And for that week, um, it was Christians from all different stripes, okay, people from Asian American Christian Fellowship, who are, not surprisingly, Asian, to people from the Black Student Fellowship, who are, not surprisingly, black, all right? All different kinds of Christians on campus put on that shirt. And let me tell you, at the beginning, the whole campus was like, what the heck is going on? There's all these crazy people with these orange shirts. By, by Tuesday, everybody had it figured out. Oh, no. It's these Christians. All right? And if you have ever had a biology teacher or an English teacher who you knew had some suspicions about Christianity, if you ever had a family member or a friend who questioned you about your faith, if you had ever had somebody who heard that you were a Christian or knew you went to church, and you could tell they just looked down at you, uh, you know, just like their respect for you diminished just a little bit, multiply that by the nth power, you don't multiply by power. <laughs> Take that to the nth power and imagine a whole campus of that. Man, we had no idea that coming out publicly as Christians would arouse such ire, such animosity, such anger from people. But it did. And people had a lot of beefs with Christianity. And we heard them all. all right? Are we standing there on Sproul Plaza? People would come up to us and challenge us and say, hey, you're wearing that shirt because you're a Christian, huh? Well, explain this, right? Scientific fact. Historical blunder, right? Terrible tragedy. Uh, contradiction in the Bible. Everything that you can imagine. We heard it all, okay? People woke up on Monday excited to put on the shirt. They put on the shirt. They walked around campus. They got to tell a few people that they were Christians. By Tuesday, it was, we're going to do this again. Put it on. By Wednesday, it was, man, everybody keeps looking at me like I have cancer. Okay? By Thursday, it was like, I don't even know if I want to put on a shirt. It's not very bad, and I'm tired of this. And by Friday, we were like, oh, I don't know if I can do this again. Okay? I mean, we really, really heard it all. All right? Uh, and to give you an example of it, there was a student organization called, it was the Student Atheist Club. Okay? They, named, they, they called themselves SANE. <laughs> Sane, which stood for students for a nonviolent, uh, sorry, students for a non-religious ethos, which, by the way, is not Sane, it's Safane, but I didn't point that out. To so anyway, the 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 president of Sane. Okay, now you know, this is happening to. I mean, not happening to. This is going on for for all the Christians on campus. Okay, and you have to remember that. I am Paul, okay? So imagine how I feel when, for instance, my mom comes to visit because she knows there's this weird thing going on that Paul and his crazy church stuff is doing. And as my mom walks 
onto campus, a guy walks by with a shirt that is, I agree with Paul, defaced with, I peed on, mom, on Paul's mom. And there's a drawing of him being on my mom while my mom is walking on campus, right? I mean, like I told you, like we saw all the venom. And so, um, and so the president of Sane comes up to me and he says, hey, you're Paul? You're responsible for this? And then all of a sudden, it's like something that's bad. And, and he starts just, just tearing into me, right? What about this? What about that? And this guy, he's just, I mean, he's a smart guy. He's definitely a Berkeley student, okay? I had just so much respect for how much intelligence he had. He's talking about like Immanuel Kant and David Hume, and I was, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what you're talking about. Can I share the four spiritual laws with you? You know? And he just like just tore me, tore into me about the faith. And I listened to him, and I talked to him, and I asked him questions, and we talked for two hours. And you know what? His response to me summarizes for me the results of that week. At the end of the two hours of talking to me, he said, you know what, Paul? I've been talking to you now for two hours. And you have not given me a single argument that has changed my mind. But this whole time that I've been, to be honest, yelling at you, you've just been listening to me and asking me questions and asking me why I think that way. And I feel like you listen to me more than people in my club listen to me. <laughs> and he said, thank you for that. I wish every Christian was like you. If they were, I might not feel that this way about Christians. Okay. And I, honestly, I'm not really saying that because I, I had this great moral victory. Honestly, I just didn't know what to say. I just was just going to sit there and listen to him. But take that and just repeat it all across campus. That there were circles of people circling around Christians, arguing at them and telling them what, what, how they were wrong. And they had nothing to say back. And even the people who didn't, you know, who weren't sort of so rough and tough about it, all these people were like, I feel really ambivalent about this because on one hand, these Christians really bug me. On the other hand, I went to science class and the three nicest people in my lab, the only people who ever paid attention to me, are wearing the shirts. I went to my Bible as literature class where they make the heck the fun out of the Bible. And the smartest people, the, the ones who, who knew the most about the Bible in the class, were all wearing that shirt. I went to my dorm and man, like everybody who doesn't get drunk on my floor was wearing the shirt. And what, what happened was that the whole campus faced, in real face, face to face, the Christians on the campus. And as hard as it was, it was just a beautiful thing to see African American brothers and sisters, Latino brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, white brothers and sisters, praying together, singing together on campus, like having conversations with other people on campus. It was actually, despite us all being Christians, probably the most diverse group on a campus that touts its own diversity. So it was pretty awesome. Now, I tell you this story because I think that what I went through was a pretty cool contemporary version of what Elijah faced on Mount Carmel. You, you say, Paul, you went through that. That's pretty cool. That's, no wonder you're standing up here preaching. That must have made you a lot stronger Christian. I'm going to tell you the truth. After that week, I never wanted to be associated with Christianity again. I'll tell you the truth. After that week, when people would start pointing out, hey, you know that whole Paul thing? That's him. I would run and hide. I mean, I literally was walking down my hall in my dorm, heard people talking about it, and turned and walked the other direction. 
And here's the reason why. When you've been in the middle of something like that, yes, God gives you strength to go through it. Yes, God is with you. Yes, you get to see His power and His hand at work. But man, it is hard. Let me tell you, it is hard. It is hard to face up against the opposition and the disagreement and the vile of, of, of everything that is against God. Not everyone, because those people, those people were not against God. But they were against something about God. It's hard to, to soak that in. It's hard to be in the middle of that. And so my reaction after going through that was that I just felt incredibly frail and incredibly weak. And honestly, it took me years to recover from it. And honestly, after that week, I would not talk about that week in a, in a setting like this for years. Because it was so, I don't want to say traumatic, but it was hard, you know? It's, I just wanted to, to cower and hide. And honestly, not only did it affect how willing I was to tell other people that I was a Christian, it downright affected my relationship with God. I don't, know, I, can't, I don't know if I can explain it to you why. It was just like, I knew God was real. I obviously believed in Him. But it was just so hard for me to, to not associate the Jesus that I worshipped with this really hard experience of encountering all this opposition. Very hard. And so when Elijah, after Mount Carmel, hears that his life is being threatened, he starts running away and he's hiding and he's terrified. And I think back on my experience, I get that. And I bet a lot of you guys have experienced God in some way. And yet somehow you know that afterwards, although everything intellectually should tell you that that God that you experience is going to be reliable and good and protect you, everything in your insides just convulses against trusting Him. And that is why this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Because how does God respond? Chapter 19, verse 5. Elijah lay there down under the tree and he fell asleep. I love this account. This is like the most interesting part of the Bible. He falls asleep. <laughs> All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water and he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. Okay, the story is now he slept, then he ate, then he drank, then he slept. <laughs> Very exciting. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Basically, Elijah sleeps, drinks, and eats. Okay? Okay. Now we get to the part. He went to a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Remember that dialogue that they just had, okay? God, uh, Elijah is honest with God about, look, I've been zealous for you. I've loved you. I've been passionate for you. But let me tell you how I feel. I feel disappointed and disillusioned. I feel isolated and alone. And I feel afraid. There. That's why I'm here, God. Okay? And God says, Elijah, come out here. I want to show you something. And this is what he shows him. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Can you guys imagine this? Elijah's standing there on a mountain. God says, I'm going to let my presence pass by. And this wind comes that tears a mountain apart. Oh my gosh, I cannot shout loud enough to tell you how crazy that is. He stands and he witnesses this wind that is so strong passing before him that it rips a mountain. And he looks at that and he says, that's not God. And then there's an earthquake that shakes the very ground that he stands on. He feels the ground shaking. That's not God. And then there's a fire. And you know Elijah knows about fire. A fire passes by. That's just fire. That's not God. And then, and then, second half of verse 12. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. After the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Okay? Now what we're about to hear is going to sound familiar to you. Because you're about to hear the very same dialogue that they just had at the beginning of this section. The beginning of the story. But there's one thing different. See if you can spot it. Okay? Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Did you guys catch the difference? Let's see. Hmm. What are you doing here, Elijah? Look up. A couple of verses. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the same. I have been very zealous. I have been very zealous. The Israelites have re- rejected your covenant. Torn down your Okay. Torn down your put your prophets. Okay. I am the only one. Okay. This is the same. Exactly the same. Any difference? The tone? Well, that's just because I'm reading it. It's not actually in the text, Richard. (laughs) But yes, I did read it with a different tone. Anybody else? Very interesting. The difference is in the third word. Then a voice said to him, At the top it says, the word of the Lord came to him. You see? Elijah is wondering, in the midst of all that's going on, where are you, God? And he sees a wind that rips mountains apart, and God is not in the wind. He feels an earthquake. God is not in the earthquake. He sees a fire, and God is not in the fire. And then he hears a gentle whisper, and then he hears the voice of God. In the gentle whisper. And guys, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. That God speaks in gentle whispers. That the great and mighty God, who is more powerful than than all the other gods, than anything else in the world, comes to us and talks to us the way that a mother does her child when she's trying to soothe him. Sleep. 
Elijah sees these displays of fire and fury and great power and earthquakes and movements of planets and stars. But God's voice is in his gentleness. He takes care of Elijah's food and water and sleep and most basic needs. And it's as if he says, look, Elijah, I know you've seen that I am the most powerful God and I know that's not enough for you. What I want you to know right now is that I am your God and I am with you. And in the most intimate of voices, he says to him, Elijah, I love you. Don't worry. I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. It's the theology of the gentle whisper. That's what I call it. It's this idea that in a world of power, where you often feel powerless in the face of how powerful everything else in the world seems to be, the Most High God knows how to meet us in our weakness, and He reveals that He is not weak, but He does not despise our weakness. In fact, it's when we are weak, that he shows how strong he is. Gosh, that's so amazing to me. That's so amazing to me. That it's in the times when we feel most broken and fragile and frail and fallen apart, when our lives are not collected, when we we can't seem to get over that stuff that kills us and all we want to do is lay down our heads and die. It's at those times that he reveals himself most to us. And he reveals himself in a gentle whisper. Um, it's hard for me to know how to respond to that. One of the ways that I've come to understand that, and, and it's really shaped the way that I am as a Christian, is that, you know, I, I've been to a lot of different kinds of churches, although not so much lately, because pretty much every Sunday I'm here. <laughs> But I've been to a lot of different churches, and there's always something about other churches that always impresses me. It's always really cool. Like, I go to some churches, and they're just really good at the Bible. Now, i got to be honest with us. Some of us know the Bible really well, but most of us are not that really good at the Bible. I can tell, because I say something like, hey, let's all turn to the book of Ezekiel. And you guys are like, oh, man, where the book of Ezekiel? <laughs> Let me go to the table of contents. And I'm up here like, oh, they don't know where the book of... Where's the book of Ezekiel? I don't know. <laughs> but we're not really like a super Bible nerdy church, okay? And then there's other churches you go to, and you know, when we sing worship, it's cool, because I know that in all of our hearts we're worshiping. But there's other churches you go to, and it's like everybody is the worship leader. Everybody's like, oh, praise the Lord, and I fall down. And we're just all here like, please don't make me clap, because I don't know. Uh, you know, like, that's kind of like, so, so we're not really that kind of church either. And there's other churches where, like, the minute you walk in, you, there's like eight smiles, like, hey, you know, and they welcome you immediately. It's just like such a loving community. And we are a very loving community. Don't get me wrong. I just feel love from you guys all the time, but we're just not very outgoing. Because some of you walk into this church and really, like, you know, nobody gets up to say hello, okay? So there's churches with all these different strengths. And I learn from all these different churches uh, all this stuff. But, you know, sometimes I'm in those churches and I realize that, you know what, you are very strong in this, but the fact that we are not means that you look at us and you kind of question our faith. If I don't know the Bible as well as you, am I really a Christian? If I don't sing the way you sing, do I really worship God? If I'm not as loving as you are, do I really have God's love? And sometimes it's not so much that I'm just paranoid and suspicious. Sometimes you do get the sense that 
people inside that church can feel a little bit superior. And actually, honestly, I'm sure sometimes we're like that too. Right? But, you know, um, the Apostle Paul faced this. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how we apply this to our lives. And to do so, I'd like you to go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. One of my favorite pastors, a guy named Alan Collister, one time he was preaching through the entire book of Corinthians. He went through all of 1 Corinthians. He got through halfway through 2 Corinthians. And he said, you know what? I'm really tired of preaching through Corinthians, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> he just said, uh, you know, the rest of 2 Corinthians is pretty boring. It's just Paul being really defensive and a little arrogant, and it really bugs me, so I'm going to stop. And I was like, wow, how could you say that? You know? But actually, I know what he means. He's, he's kind of true. Because what happens is in the second half of Corinthians, Paul just spends all this time defending his ministry. He's like super, I don't know, like, are you really touchy right now, Paul? Like, who's challenging so much that you always have to keep, like, saying all this stuff about yourself? But he totally is. In fact, the passage we're looking at, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting. Really, Paul, you've been boasting for like a lot of chapters now. <laughs> Can you stop? And, and if you read it, though, you realize this is why Paul has to do this, okay? Because Paul is the, the apostle, okay? He started all these churches, right? Including in Corinth. Okay? But ever since he started all these churches, other people have come along. Other teachers, other leaders, other people who are Christians and preaching about Jesus or claiming to be Christians and claiming to preach about Jesus. And even though they've brought along all kinds of good things to the church, they've also sown all kinds of doubt in their minds about Paul. Oh yeah, Paul did a good job here. But, you know, there's something about him. All right? Obviously, I'm talking here about the Apostle. Okay. And from our perspective, knowing he wrote half the New Testament, knowing he is the apostle, like there's no, like we go, why would you have to defend your credibility? But at that time in those churches, they looked at Paul and they said, hey Paul, explain this to me. You are supposed to be God's apostle. Well, tell me why you're so poor. Tell me why I listen to all these other preachers and they're so dynamic and you are so boring. People fall asleep and die when you preach. Like they fall asleep and literally fall out the window and die. Okay? Tell me why all these other preachers are just so, so powerful. They have all these miracles. And you, I don't know, I, don't, I think you did some. I don't remember too well. Okay? Tell me, why, tell me why all these other preachers have these spiritual experiences where they hear God's voice and, and prophesy. And you didn't really do that all that much. And they start to question Paul. And the worst of all, Paul, how could you be valid as an apostle and here you are in jail all the time? You're always in jail. Okay? What kind of apostle, what kind of representative of God gets thrown in jail? Alright? And so Paul, writing from jail, totally poor, having no church that he can say is my home church. James has a church in Jerusalem. Peter has a church in Rome. Where's your church, Paul? Jail. Having nothing to claim for himself, he writes and he says, look, you want, to, you want me to boast? I can play that game? You want to talk about miracles? I've done miracles. You want to talk about knowing the Bible? I'm a Jew up and down, from top to bottom. You want to talk about heritage, where you come from, eloquence? I can do all that. And here he goes on, because there's all these people who've been claiming, oh, I've got this spiritual vision, and i got that spiritual vision. And Paul says, look, i got to go on boasting. Right? You want to talk about spiritual visions? Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, by the way, when you hear this, you know, do you guys ever hear somebody go, yeah, can I ask you for advice? I know a guy who, and you know what they're really talking about, right? I know a guy who really likes a girl, and da 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 da, -da. This is you, isn't it? Right? So you have to understand that this is what's going on, okay? So Paul says, I know a man in Christ 
who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in his body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about someone like that. And do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you want to talk about spiritual? I'll tell you about spiritual. I was so lost in prayer that God grabbed me and he took me up to the third heaven. And I saw things I can't even describe to you that were from God. I want to talk about visions and dreams. And what's funny is that people have read this passage and since then they've tried to understand what the third heaven is because they want to get there too. So they'll be praying and say, I think I got to maybe first heaven. And then, and then I worked harder and fasted longer and I prayed. And I think I reached second heaven. I'm now at third heaven. <laughs> right? And it's like you're totally missing the point. Because Paul is not saying this because he's saying, I got to third heaven, can you follow me? Because here's what he says about that. He says, I will boast about someone like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. What Paul is saying is he's saying, look, you want me? You want to play that power game? That religious power game where we all see who's more legit? I could play that game. But I'm not going to. Although, of course, he just did. <laughs> Paul's kind of slick, all right? Although he just did. But he has a very important point. He says, I could play that game, but I'm not going to. Why? Because I am a Christian. Because this is the power game that my Lord played. He died for us. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He describes something called a thorn in his flesh, and he's not specific about it. You know, maybe it was his physical sickness. Maybe he was weak. Maybe it was um, mental issues. He can get a little crazy sometimes, Paul can Maybe it was emotional struggles. Maybe it was loneliness. Maybe it was temptation. Maybe it was sin. And a sin so deep that he couldn't get rid of it. Okay? Maybe it was literally he had a thorn. One time he was walking among rose bushes and he got it and he couldn't get it out. He's like, ow, this is really hurt. I don't think so. <laughs> it's a metaphor. And the reason it's a metaphor is because Paul's not specific because every one of us have thorns in the flesh. And I'm so glad Paul was not specific because I've got thorns in the flesh too. And I can't seem to get it out. Okay? And I read about all these great heroes of the Christian faith. People that I want to look up to. And I want to, I want to put them on a pedestal. And I want to make them great saints. And you know what? Martin Luther King cheated on his wife. A lot. And A.W. Tozer, this great Christian author, judgmental till the day he died. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this martyr for the faith, plotted to assassinate Hitler. You know, you just go down the line. There's not a one truly innocent and then you come to me. Man, I don't have to tell you guys my flaws. Thorns in the flesh. And what's so amazing is this passage, hi sweetheart, <laughs> is that this passage tells us that not only, yes, not only does Paul say, yes, 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 you have thorns in the flesh. I understand. But here's the amazing revelation about those. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord, this is verse 8, to take them away from me. I said, God, this thing is killing me. Can you take it away? And when he says pleaded, I don't think he just sat there and said, God, can you take this away? No? Okay. I'm pretty sure that he fasted and prayed and had other people pray and had whole churches pray for him. Take this away from me. Take this away from me. And then, and, it, and he didn't. And another time in his life, he, again, and he didn't. Until finally, at the end of his rope, after three times of praying and praying and praying, he hears God's voice. Anybody have a Bible with red letters? Anybody? My Bible has red letters. And has red letters for every time Jesus talks. And this is one of the few places outside of the four Gospels that the letters are red. Because it says this, He, my Lord Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you hear him? what he said? I delight in weaknesses, in hardships, in difficulties. He's saying, when I feel really at the end of my rope and I'm at the bottom of things, and I got nothing left and I just want to die, God turns the light on in my head and says, you know what? You feel like utter crap and I love you. And I'm with you. And when you were full of yourself, you couldn't see me. But now that you've lost everything, do you see me? Do you see that I'm with you? And that is so beautiful to me. And brothers and sisters, what that means, I, I really don't know how to apply this first. I just preached a message. I don't know how to apply I have no applications. Goodbye. Go home. No. I mean, what it means is that this is what our God is like. He is a God of the weak. And it means that when you are broken or, or if you are at the end of your rope, it is not that God has left you. In fact, it is at those times that God is most with you. And he has set you up to most see his love and his kindness and his goodness. I'll close with this. Earlier this week, a week ago, <laughs> I texted my friend Kevin, who's sitting right in front of me, and other friends of mine, and I told him, I'm having some serious, serious problems. And Kevin texted me back. I'm going to pray for you. And my other brother's texting me back. What's wrong? What's going on? I'm going to pray for you. And I won't tell you exactly what happened. I will say it is a thorn in my flesh. But I will tell you that I was really, really, truly broken on Monday. And on Monday, I could not imagine standing here in front of a church today preaching. And I'll tell you that right now, I, I, I don't think I could say that I love God more than I do right now. Because in the pit that I was in, just a week ago, God spoke and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Father God, some of us may be um, in an Elijah cave right now as we speak. And maybe some of us aren't. Maybe some of us are still on Mount Carmel. Um, but God, it's really not about what moment we're in right now. It's more about 
It's really about the kind of God you are, who you are. And God, I pray that we as a church would know that you are this kind of God. And yes, I, I know that I, even as I pray it, that when you reveal yourself that way to us, we are still going to forget it, like tomorrow. Like in five minutes, we will forget that you are this kind of God. And yet you will remind us again and again and again in the gentle whisper that God, you are not interested in, you are not impressed by our religious acts. You're not impressed by the Christianity we wear on our sleeves or our t-shirts. God, you're concerned with our hearts. And God, in the everyday of our eating and sleeping and drinking, in the gentle whispers, you say to us, I am yours. You are mine. And God, we love you for that. And we thank you for that. And God, help us to understand as a church what it means to be worshipers of a God of the gentle whisper. Help us to understand what it means to be followers of the God of the broken. Help us to understand what it means that in our weakness, you are strong and that your grace is sufficient. And help us to know you as that kind of God and to worship you as such and to live lives of humility and trust and faith that are a proper response to who you've revealed yourself to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, that, that's, that sermon was a perfect example that when we're weak, God is strong. You know, just for Paul to say that on Monday, he wouldn't even imagine standing up here. And God was strong. 